You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, it's a, it's a wonderful thing you've done to, to give us your word so that we can study it every day and know how to live, know how to please you. And so as we look into your word this morning, we ask for wisdom, as we always do, for discretion and for uh, the discipline to put it into work in our lives, to mortify sin and to live for Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And there's every chance we're going to finish this chapter today. <laughs> I heard that laugh. <laughs> it was out loud. We, heavens, we only have, what, seven verses to go through. <laughs> What's that, about two months worth? Okay. Let's read from chapter 12 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Excuse me, from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Does that make more sense? For even as one, as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason, any the less, a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were, and if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow, we bestow more abundant honor, and our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness. Whereas our seemly members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have one, the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you still a still more excellent way. So Paul's going to continue, in, as we study the last few verses of this chapter, he's going to continue his emphasis on unity, but with the mar remarkable diversity that the church has. <clears throat> and I said, I've said this numerous times, especially in a marriage. I mean, if both people were exactly the same, one of them would be unnecessary. So God has created a great diversity of skills and talents, and he has bestowed upon the members of the body gifts. And we're all different, 
we were talking, the kids and I were talking as we were coming in today. Anybody guess that we hear that snowflakes are all different and fingerprints are all different. What about trees? They were talking about that. Is it possible for one, two different trees to be exactly alike? I don't think so, unless God ordained it so. And so that's how different, we're all different trees. Now, some of us feel that old. But uh, the point was good, was well made. We're all as different as the different trees. There's different species. And each, I mean, two ponderosa pines of the same height, even if you could get them to be the same height by a fraction of a nanometer, a nanometer they'd still be different. They'd have different needles. The placement of the limbs would be different. And it's the same with the body of Christ. And Paul is emphasizing that because the Corinthians wanted to be like the most notable. All of them wanted to be that guy who was making the most noise. All of them wanted to follow that guy who was making the most noise. Bad, bad thing to do. It, it, stint, it, stunt, uh, it stifles uh, body growth and it stunts the growth of the individual believer. Who, I know this is a simple answer, it's a, it's a first grade Sunday school answer, but who should we emulate? Christ. Who would want to emulate somebody other than Christ? For, for crying out in the sink. I mean, he's perfect. Now, none of us is going to be there, but that's what Paul's doing. He's bringing them back to the fact that the sovereign God of the universe bestowed the gifts upon the members of the church as he saw fit. And they didn't like it? Well, that's something to take up with God. So we finished with verse 23 last week. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable... On these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Much more presentable. And this we talked about was certainly referring to the upper body. It's the, the Greek word there is about wrapping clothing around. So by protecting and covering those, it was protecting and making more honorable those who have less seemliness, it says. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 24. For our comely parts have no need, but God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe that, that the more abundant honor comes to those who are less visible, less out front. Those who are out front are honored as a matter of course, but that is not the way God intended for the body of Christ to work. Those who are hidden, doing the hard work of supporting the church and propagating the gospel must be honored, and not as an afterthought, but as rather as a forethought. When we stand before the bema seat of Christ, if there is such a thing as shock in heaven, I believe it will be when we see whom he honors first, who is in front and who is behind. Do we appreciate the nursery workers and those who set up for every Sunday meeting? What would we do without them? Would you like to meet out in the parking lot? Keep those kids out of the street. Well, most of them anyway. I didn't say that. What about those who cook the meals? who do the books? What about those who give themselves in constant prayer for the work of Christ at Kootenai? When George Whitfield passed and John Wesley preached at his funeral, um, it was an interesting time because those two men went head to head quite a bit, Calvinism and Arminianism. Arminianism. And uh, Wesley was asked if he would see Whitfield in heaven. John Wesley preached George Whitfield's funeral sermon. And he was asked by, I believe it was three, young, three women who said, will we see... Um, George, will you see George Whitfield in heaven? His answer characterizes how those who are in the forefront should think of themselves 
with regard to those who are in the background. Here's the story. One day after Whitfield's decease, John Wesley was timidly approached by one of the godly band of Christian sisters who had been brought under his influences and who loved both Mr. Whitfield and himself. Dear Mr. Wesley, may I ask you a question? Yes, of course, madam, by all means. But, dear Mr. Wesley, I am very much afraid what the answer will be. Well, madam, let me hear your question, and then you will know my reply. At last, after, a, after not a little hesitation, the inquirer tremblingly asked, Dear Mr. Wesley, do you expect to see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? A lengthy pause followed, after which John Wesley replied with great seriousness, No, no, madam. His inquirer at once exclaimed, Ah, I was afraid you would say so. To which John Wesley added with intense earnestness, Do not misunderstand me, madam. George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory and will stand so near the throne that one like me, who am less than the least, will never catch a glimpse of him. And that's the proper uh, uh, self-assessment that a worker of Christ should have. Finally, remember the mother of James and John when they came seeking um, a, a place of prominence for her son, her sons, what Jesus said to her in Matthew chapter 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down to him, commanding that in your kingdom, excuse me, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand, my right hand on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those who have been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, doulos, bond slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul was confirming what Christ taught in the Gospels. Those who would be first must be last and be grateful for being last because that is the way God designed it. Any comments about verse 24? Questions? Verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. <laughs> the word schism is a, a proper Greek word. It means a division, a dissension, a split. Uh, and it's where we get the word schism. How handy. I like it when ancient words translate directly. It can be like a rent in a garment, which makes a garment very much useless torn in half, part of the reason why the soldiers at the foot of the cross didn't want to divide up Jesus' one-piece garment. They wanted to, they cast lots for it because to schism it would have rendered it quite useless for a garment. This bestowing of honor and recognition of all, par all the parts of the body is importantly, is importantly to prevent division. Arrogance and assumption are the root of water and watering of division. They are the root and watering of division. Arrogance and assumption. People assume things about themselves. They assume things about other people. Go to one another. The point here is that every part of the body should receive the same care, whether it is the Sunday school teacher or a nursery worker or the pastor or a janitor or whatever title we, seem we need to bestow on someone. They are all, we are all members of the body of Christ. 
And the word care um, is actually an interesting word. It's an intense word uh, and can connote apprehension or deep concern. In short, we should be extremely solicitous of each other, not worried, but careful, full of care for one another, full of prayer, full of solicitation, full of longing to assist, to help. We should occupy ourselves with protecting one another and caring for one another from the least to the greatest, not just the toddlers in Sunday school, but the aged and the infirm, the middle-aged, the young, everyone from top to bottom should receive the same care, the same concern, and the same love as everyone else. One commentator put it this way. He said, the parts of the body work together. The eyes and the ears do not only serve themselves, but the whole body. The hands do not only feed and defend themselves, but the whole body. The heart does not only supply blood to itself, but it serves the whole body. Sometimes there is a part of our body which only lives to serve itself. It doesn't contribute anything to the rest of the body, and everything it, gets you, it uses to feed and grow itself. We call this cancer. That there should be no cancer, that there should be no division in the body. Part of the reason. Spurgeon said this, he said, I want every member of this church to be a worker. We do not, I'm sorry Thomas, but it says we do not want any drones. So, it's right there in Scripture. Drones are evil. Yeah. He said, I want every member of this church to be a worker. We do not want any drones. If there are any of you who want to eat and drink and do nothing, there are plenty of places elsewhere where you can do it. There are empty pews about in abundance. Go and fill them, for we do not want you. Every Christian who is not a bee is a wasp. The most quarrelsome persons are the most useless, and they who are the most happy are peaceable, are generally, the most, are generally those who are doing the most for Christ. No schism, no division in the body. And part of the, way, part of the way that is maintained is that we take care of one another. We love one another. We watch out for one another. We, we block for one another in this football season. <laughs> That's what we do. There is no rivalry. The teacher learns from other teachers and delights in that learning. The wise is struck when one is young, who is young displays wisdom and he delights in it or she delights in it. The evangelist is blessed when someone is led to the Lord by others. Service to each other is a gift that everyone strives equally for. None are left behind. Those who are in the forefront are skillful at reaching back and pulling others forward. Those who are in the rear are grateful for the helping hand. Those positions change from time to time as the body, and the body recognizes that each and every one has a blessed gift to be used in the service of Christ. Sometimes you're three steps up the hill reaching back and pulling someone forward through the, through the mess. Next time you look, you turn around, they're three steps up the hill pulling you forward. And that's how it is with the body of Christ. We're, we're, we're different but we're bonded together. We love one another. We care for one another. And that's what Jesus said, that the world would notice when they say, oh, look how they love one another. That's what Paul's talking about here. So it's a blessed gift that we use to be served, used in the service of Christ. Any questions or comments about verse 25? I told you, we're going to make it all the way to the end of this chapter. We got, 50, we got a half hour. Verse 26, and... And Paul couldn't leave. This is part of this turning over of that stone of care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In a truly unified <coughs> excuse me, and loving body, just as the nerves from the very tip of the little toe can sense discomfort and transmit to the head, so in such a body, 
of Christ, the pain of every member is felt by the others. When the toe is damaged, and in, and in, and, uh, is da when the toe is damaged, the walk it causes the walk to change, to stumble, to be stumbling and, and improper. It works over the muscles of the lower body and tires them out prematurely. So you can't walk right if your big toe has been stubbed badly. You limp. It wears out your the muscles in the back of your legs. It can cause pain in the back. Yeah, it affects the whole body. Any, any of you ever experienced something like that? You bet. This is a wonderful analogy. It's a wonderful analogy. It can also affect the back and the posture, which can in turn cause all manner of upper, upper body pain and headaches. The analogy of the body is indeed apt. When one of us suffers, we all do. And it should be because of our love but also because of the pain we feel when others suffer. We have a desire to relieve that pain and to take care of the one who is in pain. Now, there are principles to follow that the Scripture gives us when we do that, when we comfort. At the same time, when one member of the body is given praise, everyone rejoices in that praise. And if properly, properly received by the one being praised, they will acknowledge the part that everyone else had and the honor bestowed. All of us are products of those who went before us and trained us and taught us and poured themselves into us. Um, all of us. When one of us suffers, we all do. When one of us is praised, we all are honored. For we are truly the products of those who went before us and those who poured themselves into us and those today who continue to uphold us in prayer and to continue to contribute to our well-being today as people do that for us. We share in our pains, we share in our sorrows, we share in our joys. And honor to one, results in the rejoicing of all. A pain to one results in the care of that one by all. Very, very, it's a wonderful thing, the body of Christ. All different, all loving the same Savior, all protecting and caring for each other. And, it's not in there, so I'm, this is free, calling one another out as necessary when one of us strays from scriptural truth. That is a loving thing to do. That is a caring thing to do. Because if you see someone headed for a, a fire, not, not, not hell, I'm talking about believers, but heading for destruction, and you don't call them out, you didn't love them. Sometimes that kind of love is the hardest kind of love, especially if it's a family member. Because you've got to stop, you've got to try, you've got to do what you can to, to help them see the error of their ways as God calls you to do that. And none of us are exempt from that. Well, they're meeting with so and so. I wonder why God put it on your heart. I wonder why you were reading and, and the Word of God spoke to you about that. I'll bet there's a good reason. That kind of love can be the most difficult. The caring, calling love. Any comments or questions about verse, 27, verse 26? 27. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. I love the way Paul, he just, he, he rocks back and forth. You're a member of the body, but you're individual. You're one of the believers, but you're a member of the body of Christ. He makes certain to stress both so that we forget neither. We're a unit, but we're individuals. God calls us one by one. <clears throat> this is properly applied locally, but also globally. Each and every one of us in here, in this building, are individually members of the great and awesome body of Christ worldwide. But that splendor is only thus because He has done it. Lest we forget the sovereignty of God, has, He is the one who builds His church. He is the one who sovereignly calls and elects members into that body. 
Paul refers both to the corporate nature and to the individuality of those in the one body. It is this great concept that reminds us that the body of Christ is a wonder and he loves all the ones his Father has given to him individually as well as loving the whole, the church. So he has each and every one of you individually, intimately in mind, and yet he is able to also be solicitous over his entire body, the church worldwide. I'm glad he's sovereign. Con con uh, questions or comments about verse 27? And then 28. <clears throat> I saw a question. I see that hand. Actually, it's an excellent connection. The connection to the Trinity. Good work. Good work that Nathel has pointed out that this also is a, a picture of the Trinity. The individuality of each member of the Godhead and yet the oneness of the Trinity. It's a picture. It's a marvelous picture. It's not, it's, we can't make all the connections because the Trinity is beyond, truly beyond human comprehension. But he's given us enough that we can see the connection. We can see that there are three persons, individual. Each have their own work and their own special direction, but each one of them is a member of that body, that trinity, and it's perfect. I wish the church, I wish we were perfect, but we're going to be. There's going to come a time. There's going to come a time. Meanwhile, God sovereignly uses the church, and he sovereignly uses the individuals in the church. And God has appointed, verse 28, in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Paul reminds the Corinthians again of some of the gifts that the Holy Spirit, this is not a comprehensive list. Paul does no, really no comprehensive lists. There's some in Romans, there's some in Ephesians, there's some in 1 Corinthians, and people have collated them and com compiled them over the decades, over the centuries, I guess I should say. He has, he, just coming off of his teaching on unity and diversity, he points out eight of the gifts in this verse. This list, though not comprehensive, covers many of the gifts, but he is going to use it in contradistinction to a reminder in the next verse that not everyone has these gifts individually. And that the Corinthians, eventually he's going to remind them that they should seek a more excellent way. And that way will be the way of love. There is an order to these, and it starts with the most important and works to the least. Men may put people in positions for which they are not prepared, but God never does. <clears throat> Paul says here that God appointed, that is designated or deliberately designed into place in the church, apostles, ones who had walked with the Lord Jesus, and were witnesses of his resurrection, which would be the twelve, including Matthias, who replaced Judas and Paul. This position was accorded those men and ceased at the end of the New Testament period. In one sense, though, every Christian is an apostle. We are all emissaries of the gospel. But to make the distinction, use a small a, apostle. We're messengers, just as the original apostles were. But that's where our, our uh, similarity actually ends. As far as uh, the gift of the apostle, the office of apostle, the gift of the office of apostle, that position has ceased. In the same way when the United States was formed and the Constitution was, was debated by the delegates to the Constitutional Convention, once that Constitution was finished and approved, those delegates ceased to exist. Their work was done. Their work in establishing the foundation was done. There were men such as Barnabas, 
Silas, Timothy, and some others who were considered apostles of the churches, whereas the twelve and Paul were the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8.23 As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches. A glory to Christ. Galatians 1.1 Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of, the, of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Remember, the apostles were authenticated by signs and wonders and miracles. After the New Testament period, there was no mention or replacement of replacement of any of them. The last use of the word is in Acts chapter 16, verse 4. Second, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gift of the prophets. These were men appointed by God with the gift of prophecy. They were excellent at forth-telling or preaching, and when needed, in giving information about the future, generally accompanied by a blessing or a warning. Sometimes the prophets gave a revelation from God, such as in Acts chapter 11. One of them in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. By the way, that's one of the, one of the uh, checks or tests of the authentication of, of whether a prophet was authentic or not. Did his prediction come true? If it didn't, there was an Old Testament responsibility for that. They were supposed to be done away with, cut off, killed. And then other times they were simply expounding the prophet's already revealed scriptures, such as in Acts chapter 13, where they are connected with teachers, Acts 13.1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Prophets are second in the list, and their message was, their message was to be judged in relationship to what the apostles taught. 1 Corinthians 4, 14.37, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. While the teachings of the apostles were general and doctrinal, the message of the prophets of the New Testament era were more personal and practical. Their office, at least the, forth, the foretelling portion of their office, the, prop, the prophetic reading of the future, ceased with the New Testament era. And this is in the same way that the prophets ceased 400 years before the coming of Christ, when the Old Testament was completed. With Jesus as the cornerstone, note that the church was established upon the apostles and the prophets. And once that foundation was laid, their work was finished. Now the work of the church was carried forward by the evangelists, pastors, teachers, and others. Pastor, teachers, and teachers. The apostles and prophets forming the foundation of the church by equipping believers with proper doctrine which was consummated with the finalization of the New Testament. That was their responsibility. That was their main responsibility, I should say. After that, men and women take those teachings and use them to equip believers for ministry and for right living. We do not need another word from God. We have the word of God. And the, the article, the, should be capitalized, I think. You heard it here first. The word of God. We don't need something else. We don't need visions. We don't need what I think more often than not are the results of indigestion. But nevertheless, some people think that they've, they've got some sort of a word from the Lord. You get a word from the Lord by studying the word. That's where you hear it. And I, I think Lanny has a bumper sticker. It says, if you want to hear from God, read his word. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read his word out loud. Isn't that something like that? Something like that. 
Oh, that's Justin's. Okay. I like it. I like to park behind Manny's rig at the Hoodell on Fridays to remind myself. So, we have the Word of God. Barclay put it this way. He said, at the head of everything, he puts the apostles. They were beyond question the greatest figures in the church. Their authority was not confined to one place. They had no settled and localized ministry. Their writ ran throughout the whole church. Why should that be? The essential qualification of an apostle was that he must have accompanied with Jesus during his earthly life and been a witness of the resurrection. Acts chapter 1 verse 22. The apostles were those who had the closest contact with Jesus in the days of his flesh and in the days of his risen power. They watched him. They listened to him. They watched him do the things he said he would do. They watched him do things accompanied by signs and wonders. And, and in many cases, were just absolutely flabbergasted. Well, we should build these guys' houses, Peter said, when they showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter, pull your foot out of your mouth. They don't need a house. <laughs> in, let's see, Jesus never wrote a word on paper. Instead, he wrote his message upon men. And these men were the apostles. No human ceremony can ever give a man real authority. That must always come from the fact that he is accompanied with Christ, was what Barclay said. Third, Paul refers to teachers. This is both an office and a gift. Those who have the office of teaching will have the gift of teaching, but not everyone with the gift necessarily will have the office. The gift of teaching is important and was especially so in the New Testament time because, remember, there were no books. No one could read. No one could afford them. There was no printing, and people learned when, and what people learned, they learned from other people. Barclay again says this, We have already spoken about the prophets, but now Paul adds teachers. It is impossible to exaggerate their importance. These were the men who had to build up the converts, won by the preaching of the evangelists and the apostles. They had to instruct men and women who knew literally nothing about Christianity. Their supreme importance lies in this. The first gospel, Mark's, was not written until about A.D. 60. That is to say, not until about 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. We have to think ourselves back to a time when printing did not exist, when books had to be handwritten and were scarce, when a volume the size of the New Testament would cost pounds, he was British, to buy, when, ordinarily, when ordinary folk could never hope to possess a book. As a result, the story of Jesus had to be handed down in the beginning by word of mouth. That was the teacher's task. And we must remember this. A scholar will learn more from a good teacher than from any book. We have books in plenty nowadays, but it is still true that it is through people that a man really learns of Christ. And I must add a, 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 an addenda to that. Today we have the Internet. How many of you still like to read books? I, there's something about highlighting a passage you can only do that so much on your computer screen and then pretty soon you can't see anything. You have to wipe it all off. I found that out. But I like going through books. I, and actually, I kind of use both. I'm, I'm reading a book now by one of the John MacArthur's older books. And I, it's all dog-eared and highlighted. But I'm, I'm highlighting it again. But I create a Word document and I type in page 151. You've got to read this. And blah, blah, blah. You know? <laughs> so you can kind of use both. But I, I submit to you that it's the same. You don't learn as much from the Internet. Actually, I think you unlearn this a lot from the Internet as you do from listening on a Sunday morning when, when our pastor preaches. We learn more then hearing, it, hearing God's Word expounded than we do from any reading or any working on, on uh, the Internet. The fourth and fifth gifts mentioned are those of miracles and then healings. The gifts these gifts accompanied the work of the apostles and authenticated their message. 
They were both temporary sign gifts and were discussed earlier. They passed at the end of the New Testament period. The sixth gift mentioned is the gift of helps. This is an unusual word and is actually quite wonderful in its imagery. It, uh, it has quite a few... And I was supposed to put that up there for you to read. The gift of helps. It, uh, it comes from a Greek compound, antilepsis. And it means to take the burden off of someone else and to place it on yourself. Can you imagine how, how important that can be when someone else is truly burdened? They need help. They need the kind of help, not, well, I'm praying for you. Yeah, pray for them. Well, I'm thinking good thoughts about you. Yeah, think good thoughts, which is kind of Norman Vincent Peelish, but pray for them. Help them. The word means to aid to lay hold of, to grab, to assist, to lift up. It's a, it's a deep, it's a big pool of Greek word meaning. In Galatians, Paul speaks of this as well. We are to be so observant of one another and helping those who appear to be caught in sin, gently reproving and caring for another and bringing them back to wholeness in the Lord. We are to bear one another's burdens, that is, the heavy loads, even as later Paul says, each one will carry his own portion. Two different Greek words, one which implies difficulty and pressure. Indeed, it's where we get the word barometer, which measures the pressure of the atmosphere. The other implies responsibility. We are to help one another with our difficulties and encourage one another to carry out our responsibilities. This gift is one which sees in others a need to be relieved of burdens so that they can be more effective, so that they can be healed spiritually. It is probably one of the most widely distributed gifts that the Holy Spirit has ever given. Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, bear us and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Take their burdens off of them. Put them on yourself. Help them get through it. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load, portion, or in the Greek, portion. Uh, it's where we actually get the, the modern word, portion, which is what we're supposed to eat at dinner. I just eat the whole thing, but... We're supposed to eat portions. But you, you're to carry your own portion. But others were to carry one another's burdens, were to help one another. It's a marvelous thing. Uh, the last gift, the seventh, or no, excuse me, the seventh gift mentioned is the gift of administrations. It's a word that literally means to steer or pilot a ship. This is one who keeps a church or a ship on course, on time, heading towards its proper destination. And there's, many, there's a few of you in this church, and I am so grateful. If you saw my desk, you'd know why I'm not involved in administration. Um, they say a, a, a messy desk is a sign of, a, of a, an intelligent mind. I think they're just not. They're as lazy as I am, and they don't want to clean their desk up. We're to help one another. Okay, back, uh, the last gift. We'll get to that in just a moment. That person keeps the church on time heading towards its proper destination. These are generally those in leadership and responsibility it is assigned to them because of that. And we have some here, and I'm grateful for them. This last, the last gift in this partial list is the gift of tongues. It's rather significant that it is placed last and that this was one of the gifts that was being misused, misappropriated, and elevated in the Corinthian church and was held in such high esteem. It has been discussed earlier, and it will be fleshed out in greater detail when we exposit chapter 14. No, I'm not running from it. It's just that it would be like stealing thunder from an entire chapter that talks about this information. 
Any questions about verse 28 or comments? We're to help one another. We're to, we're to help one another. Verse 29. Now, Paul goes into kind of negative mode, and I don't mean negative in that he's saying negative things, but he's been being telling what the gifts are and reminding the Corinthians that, that there's a diversity in the church and that everyone has different gifts and that we are yet the body of Christ. And now he switches over. He says, okay, now, now that I've kind of listed a few of the gifts, and I've reminded us all that we're one great body, but that the sovereign, by the sovereign will of the Spirit of God, you have the gift or gifts that God has given you. He says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? So now comes a series of rhetorical questions by Paul calculated to, again, affirm the diversity of the gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit. Maybe everyone wants to be an apostle, but Paul says not everyone is an apostle. The same with prophets, teachers, and miracle workers. Verse 30, we'll go through several of these, two of these, and then we'll get back to them. All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? <clears throat> he continues working his way down the list, grabbing most of the gifts that he has talked about earlier in this chapter. He's challenging the Corinthians to rethink this idea that everyone needs to have the big gifts, the loud gifts, the attention-grabbing gifts. The Corinthians, and by extension, the later church, need to recognize that the gifts are given at the will of the Holy Spirit. And they are all good, they are all useful, they are all glorifying to God in their proper use, when put to use by those whom God has sovereignly given them to. It is important to note also that Paul begins each of these questions with the, par the Greek particle may, me, it looks, like, it looks like the word me in English. He expects a no answer. So if there was any smart aleck in the 14th pew back there, yeah, no. He expects no answers to every one of these. All are not apostles, are they? No. All are not prophets, are they? That's what he's expecting. If there was interactive, if he was doing, isn't that in the back of the hymnal, interactive stuff? Yeah. We can put that back there. All are not prophets, are they? And we could put it to some sort of tune. It's apparent also that he is ranking the gifts in importance. And note that tongues is always at the end of each list that Paul expects a no answer to the question. All do not speak with tongues, do they? He says. This alone puts to rest the idea that speaking with tongues is the sole evidence of being possessed by the Holy Spirit, being owned, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's not. It is not. Even if two people possess the same gift or gifts, their use and application will be different because of the personalities, the talents, and the other strengths and weaknesses of the persons involved. There is to be no despising of any gift that any believer has. This diversity is magnificent and it is of God because it was done as the Spirit wills. The third person of the Trinity in that wonderful unity of God. He gave you the gifts and gifts you have. And they are good. And How would it feel? Now we're getting into feelings. Just for a moment. You buy this cool gift for somebody for their birthday. You spend an hour writing up, handwriting up the card. You purchase special paper to wrap it. It's put in a special box. And you bring it to them with great expectation. They rip the paper off, take a pocket knife out, cut the box open, look at the card, toss it aside and go, yeah, I already got one of those. How would you feel? Yeah. Let's not do that to the Holy Spirit. 
He has spent an eternity past waiting to give you, if I can anthropomorphize the third person of the Trinity, waiting to give you the perfect gift or gifts for you to glorify Him. So that when you stand before the throne of God and you cast that crown at His feet, because He owns the crown, because He is only the one who is deserving of having the blessing of that crown. When you cast it at His feet, part of the reason you have that crown, most of all, if not all of the reason, was because of the sovereign distribution of the gift into your life that helped you to earn it, the crowns that God talks about. So the diversity is wonderful, and it was done as the Spirit wills. Any questions about verses 30, 29 and 30? we got five minutes to finish this puppy. We're going to make it. Maybe. Verse 31. But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you still a more excellent way. This is an interesting verse, and I, I spent a lot of time with it because there's so many different views, all good ones. A lot of, well, maybe there's some bad ones. I didn't study the bad ones, but some interesting and well-assessed views. It is important in thinking this through that remember, we remember the context of the last 12 chapters. The Corinthians were self-exalting, holier-than-thou, big noisy gift-appropriating believers. As such, they liked to appropriate, if you will, the gifts that made the most noise, or to pretend appropriate, I should say. They also had an improper view of the value of the gifts vis-a-vis -vis one another. If one was more showy, it must be more important, they thought. We cannot look at the gifts as a, as a ranking of importance or value. <coughs> Excuse me. Some will have more use of others than others for different things, but all are useful, valuable, and glorifying to God. All, when employed by their owners, their recipients, I should have written, using the more excellent way that Paul is about to delineate, all of them, will be valuable and edifying both to the church, that is, individual believers in the church, and even to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For God is delighted when his children truly live out their calling in glorifying him. With this in mind, we can note several things about this verse. It is appropriate to properly de desire, in the context of contentedness, the greater gifts. And Paul even alludes to what those greater gifts may be. In chapter 14, prophecy is ranked above tongues. In every list that Paul has given previous to this, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healings, helps, and administration are ranked as first gifts. When the gifts are lived out according to the more excellent way that we're going to be studying when we get to 1 Corinthians 13 sometime in November, I think. When every gift is used according to that more excellent way, they become life-changing, dynamic, and for those who are the beneficiaries, they become helpful, blessing, and dynamic. John MacArthur believes that based on the previous context and content, the verse should actually be translated, but you desire the greater gifts, open quote, close quote. And this is actually Paul, and what he says is this is actually Paul charging them again, as he has had to numerous times previous to this, to knock it off. They were seeking the greater gifts, the showy gifts, and he was telling them to stop Spelled S-T-A-H-P exclamation point. Stop! And he would show them a more excellent way. It is possible contextually that this could be the meaning, but I believe it's more likely and that, that giving the previous context, given the previous context and anticipating what is about to come in chapters 13 and 14, 
Paul was a careful and studied writer who was being used by the Holy Spirit to give the Word of God to the world. The more excellent way is that way which of all the gifts can be employed most effectively. The more excellent way is the way of love, agape love, which seeks only the good of those it has interest in. And all of the gifts must operate in an environment of love. If we confront someone, if we are trying to help someone, and we feel called to confront them in a misunderstanding or a misapplication of Scripture, and we do it in arrogance and haughtiness, how effective will that be? It may not be effective to our thought if we do it in love, but we are called to do it in love. And I submit to you, if what that person is doing isn't about to cause their imminent demise, then you back off and spend the time necessary to find out how God wants you to present it to them. If, it's, if they're going to die in three minutes, then just yank them out of the fire. But if they're not, spend the time necessary to make sure you're doing it in love. <coughs> so that more excellent way is the, is the infrastructure upon which all the gifts hang, I guess, or, or work through. It's the piping that, that delivers the proper help to the person in need. It's the electrical line that delivers the correct teaching to those who need the teaching. I'm not really good at analogies, but I think you get it. If without love, Paul says we're clanging cymbals. We're a waste of skin is what it should have said. I think that's really cool to say that. But it means the same thing. We're a, it's a waste of time if it's not done in love. One commentator put this way. He said, what Paul is about to embark on is a description of what he calls a way that is beyond comparison. The way that they are going, the way they are going is basically destructive to the church, the Corinthians, as a community. The way they are being called to is one that seeks the good of others before oneself. It, it is the way of edifying the church, of seeking the common good. In that context, one will still earnestly desire the things of the Spirit, but precisely so that others will be edified. Thus, it is not love versus gifts that Paul has in mind, but love as the only context for the gifts. For without the former, love, the latter, the gifts, have no usefulness at all. Did you get that? Because that's what Paul says in chapter 13. If I give my body to be burned, if I have all knowledge, it is, it is useless, he says. It's useless. For without the former, the latter have no usefulness at all, but then neither does much of anything else in the Christian life without love. Chapter 12 has been a wide-ranging compendium regarding the spiritual gifts, and as such is indispensable if one wants to understand those gifts. Paul did not want them to be ignorant. He did not want the Corinthians to be ignorant, and by extension, he does not want us to be ignorant about the tremendous information about the gifts. And so he gives a lot of information in the 31 verses in this chapter. This is an example of careful, purposeful, didactic teaching. He makes certain, he teaches by directly explaining the gifts and tethering every single one of them to the will of the Holy Spirit. He makes certain the Corinthians are told again and again that every gift is necessary and has its important uses. All have their important uses. He challenges them to recognize both the diversity and the unity of the body of Christ. He, close, he closes reminding them to take care of one another and not to assume things about one another. And then he gives his, his teaser about chapter 13, the love chapter. This chapter is a reminder of the blessedness of the called out ones, 
the church which the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for. And Paul's broad treatment here will be followed up by more line-upon-line teaching in chapter 14. In their commentary, Robertson and Plummer sum it up this way. They said it this way. The church is neither a mass of similar particles like a heap of sand nor a living swarm of antagonistic individuals like a cage of wild beasts. It has the unity of a living organism in which no two parts are exactly alike, but all discharge different functions for the good of the whole. All men are not equal, and no individual can be independent of the rest. Everywhere there is subordination and dependence. Some have special gifts, some have none. That's, he's not talking about no gifts at all. No, he's talking about special gifts, talents, things like that. Some have several gifts, some only one. Some have higher gifts, some have lower. But every individual has some function to discharge and all must work together for the common good. This is the all-important point, unity in loving service. And so thus ends chapter 12, which brings us to a close of a general teaching of the verses of the gifts in 1 Corinthians. We'll go through chapter 13, uh, and that will take quite, quite some time. It is, as I, I t tend to portray it, the, the framework upon which all the gifts in their proper, proper operation will, will function. They will function properly when employed through the love that God gives to each of us. And another wonderful thing about it is that God is sovereign even in that. And he has, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, He has works that He planned from the foundation of the universe for you to complete. They will use your gifts. They will use your talents, they will use your abilities, they will use your strengths, but they will also be made perfect in your weaknesses, in our weakness. Because when we are weak, then He is strong. And it is love that is the glue that binds all of that together. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for this chapter in 1 Corinthians. We thank You for every chapter in every book in the Scripture. You, you left no stone unturned in providing for us the ability to love Your Son to honor you, and to serve one another. Let us be about the business of doing that today and tomorrow and every day hence. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.